As the conventions approach, the political parties are beginning to draft their platforms. By tradition, these statements of policy will be written down on small squares of paper, which are then placed on a roll and hung ceremonially next to the toilet, where they'll be easy to reach. The Democrat platform is promising new incentives for small businesses so that they can grow bigger and make greater profits, which will then be taxed away and given to unemployed troublemakers to fund protests against big business for making the money they spent on the protests against the money they spent on the protests. Other Democrat business policies will include minimum wage laws, telling businesses how much they have to pay the employees they won't be hiring because they can't afford to pay that much. And there'll be hiring quotas that will make sure each business looks like America, fat and angry. The Republican platform concentrates on environmental and social issues. Republicans want to reinvigorate the coal industry so that each American has enough coal to set fire to illegal immigrants who can then be used as torches to burn down the Supreme Court. Once the court is gone, the GOP promises it will outlaw gay marriage and will demand that homosexuals limit their relationships to a series of furtive encounters in public parks and restrooms. The Democrat platform deals with social issues by calling for the formation of a committee that will study which traditions and taboos serve to keep civilization intact and will then root them up one by one and destroy them. This will ensure that transgender men, for instance, can use women's bathrooms just before roving mobs of cannibalistic savages burst in and tear them limb from limb and devour them. Democrats promise to then work for an end to anti-cannibal prejudices so that each and every American can be killed and eaten without being offensive about it. Surprisingly, both Republicans and Democrats agree that they want to put an end to free trade. Both parties say they are sick and tired of economic policies that are written by snooty elite experts in Washington, D.C. Instead, they want policies written by angry idiots who wear their hats sideways and can't understand why the damn factory left town just as they were really starting to think about kicking their meth habits and looking for a job. Both Republicans and Democrats promise to bring the factories back to America where they'll be able to hire foreigners who will do the things Americans won't do, like work for a living and raise children. The Democrat and Republican platforms are meant to reflect the attitudes and policies of those who best represent the party's standards and values, Al Capone and Bozo the Clown, respectively. The Libertarian Party was also going to write a platform, but, dude, they were just too baked. The Green Party wrote their platform on biodegradable paper, and now it's gone. No matter who wins the White House in November, their platforms will ensure that we won't have to worry about America's future because that puppy will be gone. Trick or warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Yeah. All right. All right. a little grim warning that the Clavenless weekend is upon us. It's, it's, all, it's all happening again. It's like, a, it's like a recurring nightmare, you know, every few days. Uh, the only thing on the horizon, the only dark cloud on the horizon, is uh, Donald Trump is going to pick his uh, his running mate, his VP, on uh, on Friday. He says, and I don't I don't want to have any spoilers, but I will say that Shapiro has been showing up in his best suit lately. So I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe yeah. it'll be a surprise. I think that would be a great ticket. You know, you could have one <laughs> the odd couple. That's right. <laughs> Trump's Trump's slogan would be "Make America Great Again," and Ben's slogan would be "I'm going to kill that bastard the minute he turns his back on me." <laughs> would add to the suspense. Like you never know what Trump's going to say, and then you never know when Ben's going to like jump out at him like Cato in the Pink Panther, just rip him to shreds. All right, we're live. Are we live? We're live on Facebook. Absolutely, we are so live. We are incredibly live. We are more live than anybody else. 
the, around. And we'll be here for about 15 minutes, and then you can come and see the rest of us or hear the rest of us at the uh, thedailywire.com. And if you subscribe, then you can watch the whole thing every day, and you get to be in the mailbag on Wednesdays. I mean, yesterday we answered the key question of the age, so you never know. If you ask the key question of the next age, we can solve generations of problems here. All right, so I think we have the thing we haven't taken note of, and I keep, I keep bringing in the materials for this, but we just haven't had time to talk about it, is Brexit is moving forward. I mean, the British exit from the EU is moving forward, and I'll get to why this is so important, but let's just catch up with the news. There is now a new prime minister of England. You know, if you live in America, there's like no news here of any foreign countries. <laughs> like, so there's the fact that there's, you know, the fact that there's a new prime minister in England. It's like, really? <laughs> Who knew? It's Great Britain, our, our key ally as a new leader. So, uh, David Cameron stepped down, and before he stepped down, uh, he was making fun. You know, this all happened really quickly because there were all these candidates going to fight for it and everything, and then they started resigning one by one, and they were left with Theresa May, who is now the second uh, female prime minister in history after Margaret Thatcher. And David Cameron went before question time. Americans don't know about this. The prime minister has to go to question time, which is where all the ministers get to ask him questions. And, you know, we think of the British as very polite, but that's not how their politics is a blood sport. You know, so these questions are like, you know, is the prime minister really as stupid as people think he is or is he even stupid? You know, they really ask these mean questions. So here they were having fun. They just finally decided to have fun. And Cameron in his last... Uh, question time was teasing the opposition for how slow they were moving. When it comes to women prime ministers, I'm very pleased to be able to say pretty soon it's going to be 2 nil. <laughs> and not a pink bus in sight, Mr. Speaker. And when it comes to poverty, 300,000 fewer people in relative poverty, 100,000 fewer children in relative poverty, and to be accused of sloth in delivery by the right honourable gentleman. Let's just take the last week we both have been having these leadership elections. We got on with it. We've had resignation, nomination, competition and coronation. They haven't even decided what the rules are yet. If they, if they ever got into power, it'd take them about a year to work out who would sit where. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's what British Parliament is like. I mean, you think of it as the right honourable gentleman, but people, they're screaming, yeah, 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 and they shout people down. It's amazing. It's great. Anyway, Theresa May, she is a moderate conservative, I would say. She has some uh, sympathy with labour concerns and all this stuff, but, and she was moderate stay in the EU. She kind of supported the, the Remain movement, but she did it in this kind of vague way. She was not that passionate about it. However... Of all the people, she came out with the strongest statement about the fact that they were not going to turn this back. They are leaving the EU. Here's the statement she made about this. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. There will be no attempts to remain inside the EU. There'll be no attempts to rejoin it by the back door, no second referendum. The country voted to leave the European Union. And as Prime Minister, I will make sure that we leave the European Union. And 
And she's gotten right to it. She's appointed this cabinet. First of all, she put Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was the guy who led. He's kind of like this Trump-like character. He's like a madman, says anything he wants. And he's the guy who led the Leave movement and then decided he was not going to run for prime minister and got out. But she made him foreign secretary, which means now this guy, this kind of kooky guy, this is the guy who compared Hillary Clinton to Nurse Ratchet in <laughs> One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He did, and, and he did it. He didn't do it by accident. Like while he was speaking, he wrote a column in which he called her like the sadistic nurse in a mental hospital. <laughs> and he also he also apparently has a way with women. Uh, the joke in Britain is uh, they took a survey survey of 5,000 women and asked them if they would have sex with Boris Johnson, and 80% of them said, no, never again. And so, <laughs> so he's a bit of, bit of a wild man, so he's going to be handling the uh, foreign part of it. Now, this this made a big splash over there. I'm not, I don't I think, I'm not sure over here. David Cameron then comes out this is very traditional, right? You, what you could do is you come out in front of 10 Downing Street and you say, announce that you're going to resign, and then you have to go tell the queen that you're resigning and you recommend that Theresa May be appointed your successor, and then she goes and she sees the queen. So before he goes to see the queen, he came out and made a final statement as prime minister to the press. And it, just listen to what happens as he's walking back to 10 Downing Street after this statement. Obviously, with these changes, we now don't need to have a prolonged period of transition. And so tomorrow, I will chair my last cabinet meeting. On Wednesday, I will attend the House of Commons for Prime Minister's questions. And then after that, uh, I expect to go to the palace and offer my resignation. So we'll have a new Prime Minister in that building behind me uh, by Wednesday evening. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> so he's humming. Do, 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 do. So now a lot of people took that to mean he was so thrilled to get out of, you know, off the hot seat. But really, see, in England, that's, that's like a stiff upper lip. That's a guy saying, you know, now I've done it, right, it's done, we're done, you know, now I'll just go in, blow my brains out, it'll be fine, you know? <laughs> so you don't really know what he feels. That is typical British public school behavior. Okay, so why, why does this matter? You know Van Jones? You remember Van Jones? He's a, that, that incredible radical leftist they tried to put in the White House when he kind of got smoked out of the White House. He's now, I think he's on CNN. And the, the words that come out of his mouth, I sometimes listen to him, and he is so far such a radical, such an American-hating, race-baiting radical. This, this is why this is important. This was his reaction, I think, on Twitter the day after the British voted to leave the European Union. Okay, here's Van Jones. This is the end of the world as we know it, okay? They don't want no immigrants. Does that sound familiar? They don't want multiculturalism. Does that sound familiar? Not only can Trump win, Trump is probably gonna win, not because he's smart, but because we're so stupid that we keep telling people it can't happen here. It just happened in the UK. Slap your friends upside the head. Freak the F out. Run screaming around in your underwear up and down the street and tell people it happened over there and it's coming over here. <laughs> now, now see, 
<laughs> now, that would just be comical if it weren't the attitude of almost the entire establishment, including people on, on the right. You know, I mean, guys on the, at the Wall Street Journal are writing this thing. Oh, it's the end. How will they, how will they have trade with the rest of Europe? You know, there's, a whole, there's water around the whole lot. It's an island. You know, how can you do anything? So, and it's like, you look at that Theresa May and you just think, man, eh, that woman's going to make a success of this. And, like every, and I keep saying this. Every, the whole history of Europe. Is, is Europe doing stupid things and Britain going, mm, no. <laughs> it's like it's like the Thirty Years' War, mm, I don't think so. You know, the Inquisition, uh, no. You know, the Napoleon, the Napoleonic French Revolution, spreading the French Revolution through Europe, thank you very much. I think we'll just blow up your ship so you can't come over here. You know, the, the, the Nazis, you know, no, I think we'll just shoot their planes out of the sky until they're all dead, thank you. <laughs> so now they, they've left the EU. Look, it's going to be tough. They may make mistakes. It's going to hurt their economy for a while, but I, I strongly suspect that the history suggests, history suggests that they've made the right decision while the experts are going nuts. And that's the, you know, we're living now in two different countries, if not two different civilizations. Just as an indication of this, yesterday, remember there was that memorial, was it yesterday or the day before? I guess it was the day before because we talked about it yesterday. There was that memorial uh, for the five slain police officers in Dallas. And George W. Bush who has been so classy through this administration, he has let stood by while Barack Obama blamed him for everything, everything, A after, well, it's with the last president, the last, and, and George W. Bush hasn't answered once. He has just been as restrained and classy as Obama has been gauche and ridiculous. And so Bush came and made a speech because it's Dallas, he has to make a speech for, the, for that. And afterwards, they played the battle hymn of the Republic and all the people who spoke held hands. And Bush, starts dancing around to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And we'll just show it. You can't see it if you don't subscribe, but we're still on live, so you can see it. And he's singing lyrics to Michelle Obama, who's sitting next to him, going, "Who is this white man standing?" So what? The so so people go nuts. You know why is it's a solemn occasion? Why is he dancing around? He's dancing around because he believes that the glory of the Lord goes marching on, and that even when you die, the truth goes marching on. He believes it. That's why he's dancing around. It's a celebratory song, and we're living in these two different countries where everyone else is going like, "Huh." What? You know, what? his truth? Whose truth? Who goes marching? How? You know, they're dead. What's, I don't get it. What's going on? So it's like these two different worlds. And, you know, Joel Kotkin, uh, who's a friend from the Manhattan Institute and writes really good stuff and really is, is far, is not far to the left, but he's on the kind of left of center. He said it best in the Daily Beast. He wrote, the great rebellion is on. The Great Rebellion is on, and where it leads, nobody knows. Its, express, its expressions range from Brexit to the Trump phenomena and includes neo-nationalist and unconventional insurgent movements around the world. It shares no single leader, party, or ideology. Its very incoherence combined with the blindness of its elite opposition has made it hard for the established parties across what's left of the democratic world to contain it. 
What holds the rebels together is a single idea, the rejection of the neoliberal crony capitalist order that has arisen since the fall of the Soviet Union. That's what this is about, the rejection of the neoliberal crony capitalist order that has arisen since the fall of the Soviet Union. For two decades, this new ruling class could boast of great successes, rising living standards, limited warfare, rapid technological change, but living standards are stagnating. Vicious wars are raging, poverty-stricken migrants are pouring across borders, and class chasms are growing. Amidst this, the crony capitalists and their bureaucratic allies have only grown more arrogant and demanding. Think of Barack Obama. But the failures of those who occupy what Lenin called the commanding heights are obvious to most of the citizens on whose behalf they claim to speak. And act, and this is the great rebellion that's going on, and this is the the Donald Trump phenomenon, you know. And I mean, I think th this is the part. I mean, one of the problems with rebelling against the elites is the other side of this is sometimes the mob, and the mob is just as dangerous as the elites. Do we have to say goodbye here? Yeah. Goodbye, goodbye, Facebook. I hope you survive the Clavenless weekend. Come back on <laughs> Monday if you're still here. All right. <laughs> so, so this is this revolt that's going on, but all the elites can see is race. And all they can do is they have been hiding their failures behind accusations of racism now for 50 or 60 years. And one of the reasons is, is that in order to fix some of the race problems in America, the institutional racism in America, the federal government had to step in. It had to step in with laws. The states kept saying we had state rights, but they wouldn't solve the problem. And finally, in what was supposed to be an anomalous action, a unique action, the federal government stepped in with Brown v. Education, with the civil rights law, and said, look, in every state, this, ha this has to stop, okay? And they don't want to let that go because states' rights, local rights work better than federal rights. But they, in this one instance, they didn't because this was the anomalous sin of the American people. So they just see everything in terms of race. The New York Times, a former newspaper, writing about Donald, Donald Trump, in countless collisions of color and creed, Donald Trump's name evokes an easily understood message of racial hostility. Defying modern conventions of political civility and language. This is a front page article, by the way. There's some commentary. Defying modern conventions of political civility and language, Mr. Trump has breached the boundaries that have long constrained Americans' public discussion of race. Those boundaries, by the way, were the New York Times yelled at us and we shut up. That was those were the boundaries, okay? So now it's people suddenly saying, nah, nah, nah. So Mr. Trump has attacked Mexicans as criminals. He has called for a ban on Muslim immigrants. He has wondered. Muslims, by the way, not being a race, but just, just making the point. He has wondered aloud why the United States is not letting people in from Europe. His rallies vibrate with grievances that might otherwise be expressed in private, where they're supposed to be. You're supposed to keep your, if you don't agree with the New York Times, damn it, keep it under your hat. Say it at home, but don't go out in the street and just disagree with the New York Times. What the, what the heck are you doing? What's wrong with you? It's, the, the grievances are about political correctness, about the ranch house down the street overcrowded with day laborers, and about who is really to blame for the death of a black teenager in Ferguson, Missouri. In a country where the wealthiest and most influential citizens are still mostly white, Mr. Trump is voicing the bewilderment and anger of whites who do not feel at all powerful or privileged. It's like he's the Ku Klux Klan. You know, and the thing, listen, my objection to Trump, my objection to Trump is that he knows he's got followers who actually represent what the Times is is talking about, and he doesn't slap them down. He basically winks at them. We, 
I'm, I'm positive that Trump is not a racist. I don't think he's a, a racist in any real meaning of the word, but it is despicable when he winks at them, when he says, I don't know, I can't comment about the Ku Klux Klan, or I'm not going to say anything about people getting, uh, you know, people who attack me getting anti-Semitic death threats. You know, when he winks at those people, he gives the time cover to continue this decades-long race war that they have tried to keep going to divide us to divide us so that we don't under see that they are seizing all the power, you know, ruining the economy, taking away our freedoms because we're so busy yelling at each other. This is now poured out, and it drives, it's, it's driving people crazy. It's making people crazy. You know, at the ESPYs, the, you know, the uh, sports awards from ESPN, four of the greatest NBA superstars out there, LeBron James, uh, Dwayne Wade, Chris Paul, Carmel Anthony, they open this thing, and ESPN has just become so left-wing. I, I canceled my subscription to Sports Illustrated because I just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, I just thought, like, you know, I actually wrote an article about it, and one of the guys from Sports Illustrated went on Hugh Hewitt to attack me, you know, <laughs> for canceling my subscription. I thought, it's my subscription. I can cancel it if I want to. So here are these four NBA superstars. This is how they start the ESPY Awards. Good evening. Tonight is a celebration of sports, celebrating our accomplishments and our victories. But in this moment of celebration, we actually start the show tonight this way. The four of us talking to our fellow athletes with the country watching, because we cannot ignore the realities of the current state of America. The events of the past week have put a spotlight on the injustice, distrust, and anger that plagued so many of us. The system is broken. The problems are not new. The violence is not new. And the racial divide definitely is not new. But the urgency to create change is at an all-time high. We stand here tonight accepting our role in uniting communities to be the change we need to see. We stand before you as fathers, sons, husbands, brothers, uncles, and in my case, as an African-American man and the nephew of a police officer who was one of the hundreds of thousands of great officers serving this country. But. Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, Laquan McDonald, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile. This is also our reality. See, the thing is, he, they use the word reality again and again, but when you look at those names, most of those names have been found that it's been found that they were killed with a purpose. I mean, it's tragic. It's sad. These are young men, and they're young men lost in a world of no education, of single-parent families, of poverty, of uh, drugs. You know, it's, it's a terrible thing, but that doesn't affect the guy who, ha who comes into contact with them and is at risk for his life. You know, the Eric Garner case, the grand jury refused to indict. You know, uh, Michael Brown. Michael Brown is the one that really incenses me because that hands-up-don't-shoot thing that has now become legendary just, just didn't happen. It's like during the Giuliani era. I talked about that before when they said, you know, a cop beat up a suspect saying it's Giuliani time. Never happened, but it became a slogan. So it's taking over the narrative and then calling it reality. And it's, it's a path. And I'll tell you why it's a pathology, but first we have to look at, I just want to show you how the entire, that's the sports industry, the entertainment industry. Here's Bill Maher talking about it. Bill, Bill Maher's like deep understanding of, of this situation. When it comes to the police, look, there's never any excuse for what happened. For shooting a policeman, of course, we all condemn that. There's no and ifs or buts. I don't condone it, but I do understand it. 
We have. You understand that guy? Well, I understand the motivation, yes. I mean, how many videos can you see? How many years can go by when this is going on, when when black people are brutally assaulted? I mean, the last one, guy was just right on the ground, and he yeah. put a slug in him. Um, I'm surprised, I'm somebody, I'm surprised somebody did not fire back sooner. I mean, really? There's no ifs, ands, and buts, but? And the guy was just lying. We don't even know yet. It, it may be that he was reaching for a gun in his pocket. We don't even know what was going on. And they didn't fire back, fire back at them. You know, that, like this, this vision, it's insane, this vision of the police ranging around the streets of these neighborhoods looking for, <laughs> like gunmen, with, you know, looking for victims like in a target range. These are dangerous, dangerous neighborhoods with a lot of bad guys in them where the cops are trying, where the cops are the only thing that keeps... The peace, they are the thing, they are saving the lives. And, you know, um, Rudy Giuliani, who, as I've said, who during his uh, terms as mayor, saved thousands of black lives with the harsh policing measures that the New York Times picked on every single day and has done everything they can to roll back. They have done everything they can to roll them back. You know, he, he came out and talked about this, and Seth Meyers, another late-night comedian, he has taxed him for it. Listen to this. So there were some incendiary and counterproductive responses to the tragedy in Dallas, but there were perhaps no worse response than that of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who complained in perhaps the most galling and offensive way possible that those peacefully protesting for police reform should shift their focus. If I were a black father and I was concerned about the safety of my child, really concerned about it and not in a politically activist sense, I would say, be very respectful to police. Most of them are good. Some can be very bad. And just be very careful. And so what a police... I'd also say, be very careful of those kids in the neighborhood and don't get involved with them because, son, there's a 99% chance they're going to kill you, not the police. Okay, first of all, don't ever start a sentence with the phrase, if I were a black father. <laughs> if you are a black father, you don't need to say it. And if you're not, you should probably just shut the up. Okay. Now, first of all, Giuliani bobbled the statistic, right? It's not the, that your friend is 99% likely to kill you. It is that 90, over 95% of blacks who are shot are shot by other blacks in their neighborhood. So that's what he was trying to say. He bobbled the stat. Okay. But, but you know, every single late-night comic, every single one is a left-winger. Every single one. How is that? How is that possible? Every single one. And if you watch them, their key joke, their main joke that they repeat again and again and again is dropping the F-bomb on conservatives. You know? How blankety-blank crazy is that? Shut the blankety-blank up. Every single... I don't give a blankety-blank... You know, every single one. That's their sense of humor. It's just so hilarious. And it just shows how serious and concerned they are that they do this over and over again. It's selling... This guy... Giuliani saved thousands of black lives. This Black Lives Matter movement is costing black lives. The New York Times is costing black lives. But more important than anything else to me, I mean, obviously, the, the black lives are, are, the lives are incredibly important. But also important is this pathology they're selling. They are bringing back, they are keeping racism alive. You know, here's this story that was on the local news about a woman with a sign. Just, just watch, just play the opening of this. Just four words, but her methods are raising some eyebrows and turning heads on Chicago's south side. CBS 2's Audrina Begas talks to the lady with the sign in this original report. 
It's very touching, especially someone who's not colored and making a stand for what is right. I commend her for her courage to do that, but we need more. A thumbs up, a wave, head turns, and pictures. In Inglewood, a white woman. You know, I mean, the heroic, poetic tone. She's got a sign on that says, Black America, I'm sorry. Now, I, I just want to tell you, I'm not sorry. I don't apologize to black people because I haven't done anything to black people, and I don't even know what black people means. What does black people mean? When you say black people were hold like which black people? The guy I'm talking to right now who was born in 19, you know, in, in, in 2000, you know, and it wasn't there when slaves were held? When you say white people held slaves, what, you know, what does that mean? What, what people? Not me. Not me. You know, my people were slaves in Egypt, pal. You know, I mean, my people have been, you know, and, and, and by the way, you know, were my people killed by the Germans? Do I go around and talk about the Germans and say, you know, what rat, rats you guys are? I mean, the people in Germany weren't born when those things happened. You get a soul, when you're born, you get a new soul to start the world again, to think of people this way. Listen, it's, it's very human and very natural to cling to your tribe and to be tribal. You know, all a baseball player has to do is change his hat from Boston to New York, and he goes from being a villain to a hero in New York, we have an instinct, we have an instinct for tribalization. But to play to that instinct is un-American. I mean, the whole point of America is we are united by our creed, which was what George W. Bush was saying yesterday while Barack Obama was pushing, or the day before yesterday, while Barack Obama was pushing his crappy agenda that started a lot of this and has exacerbated a lot of this. Look, it's a pathology. Thinking about people in terms of the color of their skin is a sickness. It's a sickness, and it's a sickness that comes with the human condition because the human condition is a sick condition, a fallen condition. But for these guys to keep that sickness alive, to keep themselves in power, is a sin. It's a sin. And I hope, you know, what I'm in favor of now is for a Mexit, <laughs> for America to absent itself, to vote to absent itself from this left-wing cabal of elites who have, and crony capitalists, great word for them, crony capitalists, who have been imposing this vision of us that is meant to keep us separated, to keep us apart, black and white, rich and poor, so that they can consolidate their power. When we get together, when we say no, when we say no, they're done, and they should be done. They really are an evil bunch, and they've done terrible things to this country. They've set us back years and years. And that's, with that thought, I leave you to the Clavenless Weekend. You guys are on your own. But I won't go away without going back to our pal Larry Gatlin, who is here to promote Hillary's America, a film that's opening in two weeks that you should all go and see. I told him while he was here that my favorite of his songs, he was with the Gatlin brothers, was I used to be somebody's baby, and he was teasing me that I was the only person who bought that song. But it was actually kind of a hit. It wasn't one of his biggest hits. But I just really like this song. And it's not really a country music song. It's kind of a, I'm not sure, jazz, gospel, something. But uh, take a listen to it as we go out. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. Stock up on bullets and water, and you'll make it through to Monday, and we will be here to see you again. She used to be some somebody's baby. Used to be some somebody's girl. She used to be some somebody's lady. She used to be some somebody's world. And before you start acting like the king of the mountain, you better hear one thing: Jack, somebody wants her back. Somebody yes, wants her. somebody wants her back. Somebody really uh -huh. wants her. Somebody wants her back. Somebody wants her yes, back. Yes, somebody wants her back. But she used to be somebody's baby.
start acting like the king of the mountain, you better hear one thing, Jack. Somebody wants her back. Somebody. Uh -huh. Somebody.